You're listening to Distilling Theology. I'm Blake. And I'm Justin. And this is a podcast pairing discussions of theology and distilled spirits. And dad jokes. Amen. What's wrong with you people? You're not David. I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. Fatality. You know, starting a podcast about theology and distilled spirits is whiskey business. (laughs) I said that with a straight face. This is Distilling Theology. Welcome back, men and women of the covenants. (laughs) Uh, We are so pleased, chuffed to bits, if you will, to have you back listening to another episode of Distilling Theology. Uh, I am here, of course, with my handsome and long-haired co-host, Balake. Uh, welcome back. Uh, how have you been, my friend? You know, it's been a whole week since we recorded, and uh, it's a nice to be back. 45 minutes and, since we talked. Yeah, too <laughs> well said. Uh, it's it's nice to be back into the rhythm. Um, we kind of have a good mm-hmm. recording schedule going. We've got some very exciting things planned for the rest of the month yeah, of September. Do which I'm sure we'll talk about by the end of the episode, at least at least allude to it. But yeah, it's been good. I finished, I, I don't know if I mentioned this in the last episode or not, but I finished Mike Horton's Pilgrim Theology on Audible. It's like a 20-hour book, but I listen at like 2x speed, so it didn't take that long, just kind of driving around. And it's very digestible. I would highly recommend uh, Pilgrim Theology to anyone looking mm-hmm. for like a good, thorough, but not too in-depth systematic theology, because um, it's like a consolidation of his more academic work, The Christian Faith. Um, and I found it really, really easy to just listen to the audiobook is fine. Um, and yeah. I'm planning to get a hard copy eventually. So, yeah. yeah. Awesome. That's Super exciting. Going on. Super exciting. Uh, just a reminder, guys, uh, we thought we'd throw out there that we are in fact still proud members of the Society of Reform Podcasts. Right. We didn't get kicked out. <laughs> <laughs> we have not yet gotten kicked out, uh, despite our antics. Uh, so we're super pumped about that. Um, We are also fellow members with uh, the lovely folks of Assurance of Pardon, uh, the Bobcast, Christ in Context, uh, us, of course, Distilling Theology, uh, Fast God Stuff, Reformed Brotherhood, Reformed Pilgrims, Sippin' on Theology, and the Steady Anchor Podcast. Uh, If you guys really want a solid, continuous stream of biblical, reformed content, uh, go to reformpodcasts.com. Check it out. You will not be disappointed. And if you are, then... Uh, sanctification is a thing. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, also, uh. just another reminder, please check out distillingtheology.com, click the link for the store, and you can check out some of our merchandise, which we're super excited about. Still, Ooh. never gets old. We That's love right. these mugs. Uh, quotes from Wonderful Works of God by Herman Bovink on mugs that you can put coffee in so you can fill your mind and your soul at the same time every Ooh. morning and also it's, i think i think there is something um scientifically proven that your mm. coffee is more effective and tastes better uh when it's uh in a theology mug i think that's um that's definitely been a fact uh although that does bring up i, I wasn't originally going to mention this but we did have a little fluke with the website this week and we both kind of went into a panic Whoops. Uh, but by the grace of god uh you know crisis averted and hopefully nobody noticed except for the fact i just mentioned it so uh, all yeah. is well now. Now you know that we are, in fact, normal humans just like you. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we make mistakes. 
you might be stretching the word normal there, but yeah, that's true. You know, we are humans. We, we, yes, we are part of mankind and part of fallen humanity in that way. Blake, what is in this wonderful distilling theology, Glen Cairn tonight? Oh well, I'm super excited about it. For those on Patreon, this is not water, despite it being a clear liquid. Um, it is also not gin. It is decidedly not vodka. It's not white rum. It's not tequila, although it is related to tequila. Tonight we are sipping from the Del Magüe Distillery, Vida de San Luis del Rio Mezcal. Um, Blake, I didn't know you were bilingual. Hey, uh, apparently I can only say <laughs> small phrases sounding remotely sort of okay. Uh, and if it's Dutch, we're okay. Well, I'm a sabrakel. All right. Um, <laughs> so just got to get one in every episode now. It's, it's one of those true. features. Uh, so Mezcal is a distilled alcoholic beverage, which is made from uh, any type of agave plant. So there's different you know, variations of agave. Um, so this is the, basically a health beverage. Yes. This is, um, <laughs> you know, for the... Uh, chakras to be properly aligned mm-hmm. and uh, oh boy <laughs> <laughs> that just happened <laughs> no it, it's probably more um more like a, an essential oil because <laughs> it is essential that you participate and, and enjoy some mezcal uh, basically oh so, so after they harvest uh, the agave plants the distillers will extract the piña or what's called the heart of the agave plant uh, and then they'll cook it for several days in these underground oven pits. Then they'll crush that cooked agave piña uh, and mash it and then ferment it um, and then distillation follows. Like tequila, mezcal is distilled twice. As far as I understand it, and I could be wrong, but last I checked, uh, tequila is technically a subset of mezcal because tequila is a more specific version. Um, it's a specific type of agave with a specific production process where mezcal is much more broad. So think of mezcal like whiskey, like it's a big broad category. Um, tequila is more like scotch, like it's a it's a specific type of region, even though more people probably know about um, tequila than mezcal, which is kind of unfortunate because I think mezcal is a, a more refined and more interesting spirit. And uh, now it should be said there are some that um come with worms or snake in the bottle this does not come with worms in the bottle but um you know that is a thing so yeah beware, beware. buyer beware just basically you know look in the bottle when you buy it uh <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's more of a thing when you're actually in mexico that you would find that i don't i don't know that that actually gets imported into the states sure but this particular mezcal was launched in 2010 and it was intended as an entry point mezcal because like scotch Mezcal gets expensive very quickly. Um, this is about a $35 bottle, but some other bottles of Mezcal right next to it from the same place were in the $60 to $80 range. So it just like jumps real fast. Sure. Uh, this is produced in the village of San Luis del Rio. Agave was roasted for three to eight days and it was fermented for eight to 10 days. Um, and it's not aged, hence the clarity. Like there's no, there's no um, barrel aging going on. Um, so there's that, and it's bottled at 42% alcohol by volume. So, Justin, this is this is your first time having Mezcal, correct? It is. So what are your it initial I've not impressions? I've tequila before. What? Bro. Mm. I, I, I've, you know, I've, I've never had alcohol before, Blake. <laughs> I think Scott and Gage might have some questions for you from their most recent <laughs> episode that uh, we, were, we were thrilled to be on. Speaking of which, go check that out at Assurance of Pardon. Uh, we had a... Great time hanging out with those guys talking about uh, alcohol in the Bible. 
there were some really hilarious jokes along the way. So definitely check that out. And there's an awesome extended conversation on Patreon. So, you know, there's that. Anyways, uh, what are you smelling, Justin? Well, right off the gate, it almost smells like a peated whiskey. Mm -hmm. It's at least for me here. It's it's very heavy on the. On like the almost like an earthy smoke type of smell. Sure. You know what? I I find this like this is going to sound weird, but I find this like grassy grassy yeah, like grassiness yeah. and lemon um and where peat smoke tends to be very heavy um and meaty this it's very light it's much more yeah, yeah. but it, and it's not like there's some peated scotches but i don't think we've tasted anything quite in this vein that really have like a strong seaweed note and this isn't that either because so in scotch production sidebar um the smokiness comes from roasting the barley before the distillation right Sure. Uh, and that's basically to dry it out. And so they're drying it out over there's like they're they're heating up the peat as the the source to dry out this whiskey or to dry out the barley, my bad. Um but in the case of the agave, they're actually roasting the thing that gets fermented and ultimately distilled. So it's a slightly different process, though not utterly unrelated. Um for me, I find yeah, I find that like very bright citrus note. I find that like um, it's very, very intense smoke and that kind of grassiness. I also get a saline quality or like a saltiness to it as well. It's kind of herbal, right? It, it kind of has like an herbal quality to it. For sure. Almost, there's also almost medicinal. There's also something a little bit sweet that's like underneath the nose. I don't know if you catch that at all. It's like kind of, it's not, it's not honey. It, it actually might be, oh, it's the agave. I'm a genius. <laughs> so, okay. So it's kind of. Think of it. But there's a little honey in there, I guess. This is going to sound weird, but it kind of reminds me of like a, and and I smell this all the time because of where I work. It almost kind of reminds me of the smell of hand sanitizer. Interesting. Um, but yeah, with I'm more not... of a, but with more of like a fruity twist. Okay, so I think I figured out my the part of the nose because I just read it off the off their bottle. Um, so what they note on it is heightened fruit aromatics, hint of honey and vanilla. Which is interesting because they don't even mention the smoke, even though I definitely, definitely There's get definitely the smoke. There's definitely some peppery smoke in there. Mm-hmm. And here's their little descriptor from their bottle before we sip it. Uh, the Magwe Single Village Mezcal brings you a collection of artisanal and ancestral mezcals made in the lush, remote mountain plains and valleys of, and I always forget how to say this word in Mexico, so I'm not going to say it because I don't want to say it completely wrong. I'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> I can't embarrass myself too much, uh, but I'm ready to taste this thing. Now, this is more of a mixing mezcal. So this would be something that you would make. Like this makes my absolute favorite margarita, um, which I did in a live episode uh, or a live video that I did in the Distilling Theology Facebook group. So there's that. I'm almost getting, sorry, I'm just like, no, I'm so nose deep in this. Almost getting like a, like a bell pepper. Okay. That makes sense to me. Like because of where it's produced um, that makes sense to me. Okay, I'm gonna listen to this on YouTube real fast. This is embarrassing. What is it? It's how to say. Oh, okay, yeah. So Oaxaca, Mexico. But I always say it wrong because it's spelled O A X A C A. My American brain is like, nah. Even though I know that's what it is, so I'm always like, no, that's not what it is. But that's what happens when you're uh, not bilingual. Okay, let's taste this thing. Yeah, this is gonna be interesting. Cheers, brother. Indeed. Oh, yeah. 
That is unique. It's like yeah, man. spicy and fruity. Mm-hmm. I'm almost getting like like poopery. You know what I mean? Whoa. Uh that same smell you get, but like on the palate. I'm I'm getting like a little bit of ginger, which is I think is where that spice and that bite is. Mm-hmm. And maybe some baking spice, like a nutmeg or a cinnamon in there. I'm getting more of an almond. Okay, I can see that. Oh, I hear, I hear the bells. Mm, the bells, the bells. Yeah, I live right across the street from the town hall, which has a nice mm. clock tower on it, which is, I don't even hear it anymore because I've lived here for 30 years. But mm. It's like a, I'm trying to think where to put the mouthfeel. It's, it's fairly medium bodied. Like it's, it's not as light as you would think looking at it. But it's not super heavy or, or crazy viscous either. I'm almost getting like tobacco on the end. Yeah, man. Yeah, like like a nice cigar. Yes. When you're like yeah. after you've like blown the smoke out. The aftertaste of a good good, good cigar. Yes. Yeah. Which There's, makes me think this would be good with a cigar. Oh, it would be great. There's also a little bit of tang going on in there. Mm-hmm. Like I don't know if that's oranges or tangerines or something, but there's some kind of tanginess. Um. Which is interesting because on the nose, I got that much more bright, like lemon citrus, but on the mm-hmm. palate, it's a little bit sweet. It's actually sweeter than I remember it being, which is so nice. How, how would you mix this to make a margarita? Mm. Well, <laughs> I would take two ounces of this, combine it with um, one ounce of fresh squeezed lime juice, which is like you just get a juicer. You can pick it up at Target for like 12 bucks. It's worth it. Just a little hand press thing that you just put the the... You cut the lime in half, you stick it in there and squeeze the juice out of it into your cocktail shaker. And then um, three quarters of an ounce of triple sec. I usually use Cointreau just because I haven't found anything else that quite balances the citrus flavor with the sweetness with the alcohol as well as Cointreau does. So I would do that. I'd shake it um, in a cocktail shaker and I would strain it into a rocks glass, serve it on the rocks and garnish with a salt rim because the salt helps to balance out that kind of sweet. Cause like actually as this sits, there's almost, I can't tell if it's a nutty sweetness or like, do you see what, do, do you taste what I'm tasting? Like that aftertaste? Mm-hmm. What is that? I, I really want to look be, at the it bottle. Could but be, I, it could be kind of like almost like a cashew sweetness. Mm-hmm. It's very, uh, it's not sweet. Per se, but it, it's sure. sweet and kind of a unique. But it reminds kind of me of something. Way. Not sweet like sugar. All right, I'm gonna read the I'm gonna read the label, and I'm okay. gonna be embarrassed when I see what they say. Okay, so their palate <laughs> says ginger, cinnamon, sandalwood, banana. Mm. Uh banana. Okay, that that's think, the sweetness. Yep, uh, and tangerine. Mm, okay, and roasted agave with a long, smooth finish. And there's no chemicals, colorings, or additives ever used in any Del Magüe single village mezcal, so that's pretty amazing. Yeah, dude, I I re- like I remember when I was working at the Speakeasy and I got introduced to mezcal, and it actually gave me a greater appreciation for good tequila as well because I started sure. to, to. There's a similarity yeah. because they're both coming from agave, so um, you have a very similar kind of thing going on in the palate. But yeah, I'm a I'm a huge fan. Yeah, this is, this is this is pretty good. I'm gonna really enjoy sipping this throughout the rest of the episode. But uh, mm. what are we? Let's let's open with some prayer and yes, uh, get into it. So if you have a Valley Vision, which if you don't, I highly recommend that you do. Mm. Get it, get some, amazing. 
Uh, open to page 240. Going to be reading about divine promises, which is fitting for the subject we're reading tonight. Oh. Speaking about. Okay. Um, so, page 240. Divine promises. Glorious Jehovah, my covenant God. All thy promises in Christ Jesus are yea and amen, and all shall be fulfilled. Thou hast spoken them, and they shall be done, commanded, and they shall come to pass. Yet I have often doubted thee, have lived at times as if there were no God. Lord, forgive me that death and life. When I have found something apart from thee, when I have been content with ephemeral things, but but through thy grace I have repented, thou hast given me to read my pardon in the wounds of Jesus, and my soul doth trust in him, my God incarnate, the ground of my life and the spring of my hope. Teach me to be resigned to thy will, to delight in thy law, and to have no will but thine, to believe that everything thou dost is for my good. Help me to leave my concerns in thy hands, for thou hast power over evil and bringest from it an infinite progression of good, until thy purposes are fulfilled. Bless me with Abraham's faith, that staggers not at promises through unbelief. May I not instruct thee in my troubles, but glorify thee in my trials. Grant me a distinct advance in the divine life. May I reach a higher platform, leave the mists of doubt and fear in the valley, and climb to hilltops of eternal security in Christ by simply believing he cannot lie or turn from his promise and purpose. Give me the confidence I ought to have in him who is worthy to be praised, who is blessed forevermore. Amen. Yeah. Man, I love it. Yeah, that's good stuff, bro. Dude, this never gets old, man. Valley Vision is so good. Indeed. I'm very glad that we are bringing it in. And, yes. Uh, you know, yeah, so if it. you didn't pick up, uh, from that prayer, we're going to be opening up the discussion of covenants Ooh. and covenant theology. We are covenantal Christians. We believe in a God of covenants. Uh, and so I think it's pretty important that we have some general idea of what that means. Um, covenant theology is actually the thing that divides Blake and I, theologically speaking, <laughs> how we understand the covenants. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the it's the distinguishing factor between Baptists and Presbyterians. Uh, believe it or not, baptism is not really what separates us. It's, yeah. it's this. Um, mm-hmm. That's just a natural outpouring of how we understand this. Sure. Uh, so to start off, uh, Ligonier has a great quote uh, defining what a covenant is. Um, it says this, Scholars have defined covenant, translated from the Hebrew berith, and the Greek diatheke, I don't speak Greek or Hebrew, in various ways, and the context in which the word is used in Scripture will also inform our understanding of its meaning. At its most basic level, a covenant is an oath-bound relationship between two or more parties. Thus, human covenants, for example marriage, fall under this general definition. In defined covenants, God sovereignly establishes the relationship with his creatures. There are other nuances, but a divine covenant given after the fall is fundamentally one in which God binds himself by his own oath to keep his promises. Mm. Um, so I think it's I think it's rather significant considering covenants are really the backbone of the biblical story, right? Sure. Um, that is how we understand redemptive history and how God interacts with people throughout all of scripture. 
It's through covenants. Um, yeah. 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 And I think, I think that's, yeah, it's a really good spot, spot to start. And obviously we're not going to die deep dive into necessarily the distinctives of the different kind not of theologies. This week. Oh, little teaser. <laughs> uh, because we have, we have some very exciting things coming up that we'll talk about a little bit later, but as we're looking at it tonight, um, just from a general sense, like not even getting into covenant theology specifically, we do see this phrase that gets translated into the English word covenant um, show up a lot in the Old Testament, right? We see God referencing this with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses, with David in particular. We see the new covenant, uh, particularly in Hebrews, but throughout the New Testament. Mm-hmm. And so this idea of this oath-bound promise is all throughout scripture we see human examples of it as that article was pointing to within marriage um and there are also like covenants with between sovereign nations um usually there were there were situations where you know one king one kingdom would conquer another kingdom and they would make a covenant um we could get into that in a second with like with the abrahamic covenant but uh do we want to take a look at some of these just real fast in the um in the text of scripture, just to kind of get a, a sense of the, of how these are used in the Bible. Yeah. So, uh, ultimately there's a few different covenants that are important to note. Um, we have the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant, right? Um, all of these things are things that are promises between God and people. Um, we have, uh, starting off, we see right in Genesis, uh, we have the what, what what could also be called the universal covenant. Uh, it's sure. kind of a, a covenant with all of creation. Um, the Noahic covenant, uh, it's when he announces with Noah and all of creation prior to the flood uh, that he establishes uh, after the deluge subsides, you know what. He basically says, I'm not going to do this again. Uh, he makes the promise uh, to all of creation that he's not going to wipe it out again with a flood. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, Genesis 6, Genesis 8, um, oh, yeah. we see that through Genesis 9. I mean, it's right in Genesis 1. It's it's all over the place throughout Genesis is where we see uh, the very beginning uh, of covenant mm. um, themes language. and, and yeah, the sure. language. Now, I think uh, you and I would both agree um, mm-hmm. that in the garden, what we talked about last week with Genesis 3, mm-hmm. um, even in there, or, or even before, sorry, before Genesis 3, before the fall, God yeah. has this, there's still a covenantal structure, right? God is saying, do this and live, do this and die. Like sure, there's a, sure. there's still this, uh, and, and this kind of gets back to our theology proper, right? Yeah. This is that balance between the transcendence or the, the difference of God, the, the, the way that he is infinitely above us and his eminence and his presence and, you know, in closeness to the world. Sure. sure. And well, it's, it's, in, yeah. it's important to note what you said too. do this and live. Um, that, that's an important factor in what we understand as a covenant of works, essentially do these works and you will live. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's an important. You're going to hear terms like covenant of works, covenant of grace, uh, and then the way sure. covenant. All these other covenants we've mentioned, uh, but ultimately overarching um, covenants that have uh, eternal consequences uh, are sure. really the covenant of works, covenant of grace. Yep. Um, and that's an area where you know we'll, we'll get into the differences there because that's where a lot of the differences yeah. lie between our positions. Um, but Eat. what's exciting to the, to me about that though, regardless, is mm-hmm. when you start to see the Bible, whether it's 1689. You know, Baptist Covenant Theology or Westminster Confession Covenant Theology. For me, anyways, both systems start to make a lot more sense of the the continuity of Scripture uh, yes. in a way that systems like dispensationalism, for me, didn't. Um, I'd like <laughs> to have someone it. on who's a dispensationalist who actually, you know, kind of in the vein of John MacArthur, who would be able to articulate 
that position. Uh, so sure. I'm not just caricaturing it, but for me, I have a hard time with the way that dispensationalism slices and dices the scripture um, mm-hmm. into these different dispensations or eras where there's kind of different hopes and different bodies where I think both of our views, as far as I understand, there's still a uni- unification in Christ um, between the church and Israel, right? Uh, and then when we come to Genesis 15, we see Abra- Abram at this point, right? Mm-hmm. And God makes this covenant to Abraham. And th- there's this whole elaborate thing that happens. I'd, I'd recommend reading the whole chapter, but I just want to read a couple substantial parts here, right? Um, God's telling him about this promise of his heir. And in verse 7, he says to him, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess it. Uh, and Abraham says, oh Lord, how am I to know what I'm to possess? And so God tells him to bring these animal sacrifices. So Abraham brings out all these animals. He cuts them in half and he lays each half over the other. Uh, And the sun comes down and Abraham falls asleep and God speaks to Abraham again. But then this very interesting thing happens. And until I started to study covenant theology, I didn't understand the, the significance of what happens in verse 17. So there's these animal sacrifices that God tells Abraham to bring. In, as he's making this promise, this covenantal relationship. And these pieces are all laid out. And so the sun goes down and it was dark. And behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on the day that the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying to your offspring, I will give this land. Um, so God's making this promise. But what's fascinating is if you look at Near East and ancient uh, like Mesopotamian covenants, what would happen is you would have the kingdom that would come and conquer, right? Or the suzerain lord, right? The king there would speak to his vassal servant, who would be this new kingdom that he had just taken over. And instead of killing everybody, they would make a covenant where this king would basically promise protection. But at the same time, there were terms that the, the king who was um, who had been conquered was agreeing to uphold and to obey. And if they don't uphold them, that per- the person who was the vassal of the covenant or the the lower position, the one who was not really in a position to argue, who had the demands placed upon them, that was the person who would pass between the meat. Like basically as a visual representation of, but but more than just a visual, right? Because it's like, if I violate the covenant, this will be me. If I violate the terms of this covenant with our, you know, suzerain king, I will be cut to pieces. Mm -hmm. And yet in the Abrahamic covenant, it is not Abraham who is the you know the person who really has nothing to bring to this equation right. who goes between <laughs> right. the it's it's the it's the mighty king of the universe it's Yahweh God Elohim who in this vision in this flaming torch of fire representatively passes between these things and it that changes the whole dynamic from what whatever else we see and so I I don't want to like get too technical I'm sure both of our guest you know guests in the coming weeks will touch on this a little bit but I remember reading about that and I was just so fascinated by even here in Genesis 15, we are seeing a sacrificial love on God's part and a, a promise basically on the basis of his character. Um, I don't know if you have anything else to add to that, but I, well, I I think what else is interesting with the Abrahamic covenant is there's essentially two covenants that God makes with Abraham. mm -hmm. Uh, One is, is uh, I think more of a, I mean, we see that God is basically going to take Abraham and make him into a great nation, right? Uh, he promises to, you know, you're, you know, you look at the stars and your your offspring's going to, you know, and so on. And so 
that's kind of one covenant. And then we see additionally, um, we see him uh, basically affirm um, to promise to bless all of the nations through Abraham and his offspring. So not only is his own personal offspring uh, in many ways going to be a blessing, but also mm-hmm. all of the nations are going to be blessed ultimately by the offspring of Abraham. Mm. So it's almost there, there's almost a more universal uh, a- application with one of them, and then the other sure. one is a bit more personal. But um, mm. but it's almost as if there's two distinct Abrahamic uh, covenants sure. within the one. And I think that that just the whole premise there of seeing the way that God interacts again, coming back to that idea of transcendence and imminence. It's like, how does an eternal, infinite, you know, immutable God interact meaningfully with created beings? And we touched on this again in theology proper. Uh, There's those who are within the reformed world who use the language of covenantal properties. And so they would say that God, um, take, he's immutable, but he takes upon himself these mutable or changeable properties, uh, (laughs) when he does these covenants. And yet, I think the simpler explanation is just that the infinite, immortal, invisible, immutable God who we worship uses covenants as like condescension, just as he uses anthropomorphic and anthropopathic language to help us understand him. These covenants are a way to relate to this infinite God, and it's a representation both of his transcendence above us, but also of his imminence and the closeness uh, with which God is present with his people. But anyways, there's, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So then well, we have, um, yeah, yeah f- following up after the Abrahamic covenant, uh, shortly thereafter, uh, anticipating the emancipation of Abraham's descendants um, from the oppression of foreign lands, uh, God establishes the Mosaic covenant, uh, right? We have um, uh, God establishing with Moses the covenant. Essentially, it's it's like the as what as we really understand, like the covenant of works uh, in many ways, Um so basically the focus there on Sinai was less about Abraham's descendants uh, and what they must do to inherit the land, but more on how they must conduct themselves within the land uh, as the unique nation of God intended them to be. Uh, when talking about, um, uh, you know, God's promise to um, Abraham, <laughs> his descendants becoming um, a, a particular people, uh, and then following up in Exodus 19, um, where that actually comes to fruition and how they're supposed to um, actually <laughs> act as yeah. the people of God to distinguish them uh, from other people, um, which is, I think a lot of people get hung up on a lot of the Mosaic law for that reason, because there's so many unique and distinct um, laws that are put in place uh, mm-hmm. that are a, a matter of distinguishing God's people from the, from the rest of the world. Right. Um, yeah. and, and, and there's a purpose for that, which we can, we'll get into later when we get into the more of the distinctive stuff about the, the covenants. But um yeah. That being said, you know, in order to be God's treasured possession or kingdom of priests or a holy nation, uh, as Exodus 19 talks about, uh, Israel must keep God's covenant, right? Yeah. Uh, they have to submit to its requirements. You have all those weird stipulations, you know, yeah. um, not eating certain things, not wearing certain things, um, all, all those different things that aren't necessarily binding to us <laughs> now. <Ooh. laughs> Looking at you. I'm so glad to hear you say that. Of my old days. <laughs> um, and then naturally by yeah. adhering to those things uh, and the obligations given, um, Israel would then manifestly be different uh, and reflect God's wisdom. Uh, basically, the, I mean, the whole idea of those laws, it's not as though those laws aren't in any way applicable to us. Uh, they sure. are a reflection of God's character. They're a mm. reflection of who God is, um, and how serious uh, he takes his precepts, right? And how serious yeah. he takes his law. So 
when somebody is stoned, for example, for disobeying their parents, we have to understand how serious God takes obedience uh, to, to, our, to our parents, right? Um, God is very serious about being holy, and we don't take the holiness of God seriously at all nowadays, which is really unfortunate. Um, mm. th- that's an incredibly broad statement, but uh, I, th- I think we see that a lot in, in our culture. Sure. Um, there's no fear of God. And uh, looking throughout the Old Testament and redemptive history, how serious God takes his law and what he would do to people that didn't obey his law, um, mm. boy, I I, I want to keep God's law, <laughs> right? Sure. Well, and, and it's interesting, like, when you look at the Mosaic Covenant and you look at all the, the laws and the promises, mm-hmm. um, there's a phrase. I, I started to pick this up initially listening to the Reformed Brotherhood series as they were going through the book of Micah. But then, you know, as I've studied more broadly, I'm like, oh, yeah, I see, you know, where they're picking that up. But they keep talking about the prophets as the covenant lawyers prosecuting the covenant lawsuit against the mm. people. Mm-hmm. So basically, right, if you look at the prophets, what are they always saying? What, what are they always saying? They're always saying... You were command like you were told to do this. You violated God's law, and this is what God said was going to happen if you broke His law. And this is what is either about to come, what is coming, or what just happened. Like like the prophets are always so so more so than just like fantastical visions, which is what I think a lot of people associate the prophets with. And there is a lot of that. At the same time, the point of what the prophets are doing is to to basically prosecute this covenant lawsuit against the covenant people for breaking their terms of the covenant yeah. um, and to show them to, to, to repent basically, because it's like, look, you have violated the terms of the covenant and mm-hmm. God calls you to repentance and to change. And at the same time, you broke the, you broke the law. This is what the consequence will be. You know, anyways, Some sidebar. God broke the law for love. No, <laughs> stop. I saw ter- this really painful meme. It was like, a free willy poster because there's always one of those in a calvinist group it was like <laughs> free willy three uh you you can help yourself if you just you know if you just like i don't remember what and it was like Leighton flowers and um and uh that guy in the i can't remember his name oh, Stephen man. furtick in the boat and it was just that's amazing one of the worst things so davidic covenant <laughs> yeah uh Right. Uh, so the Davidic covenant uh, basically uh, is kind of a fulfillment of a lot of the previous covenants in, in, in many ways. It stands right in direct continuity of all the previous covenants. Uh, the rule uh, over uh, the world originally given to Adam would then be realized through a Davidic king, right? Um, hmm. So David is is a type or a shadow of the Christ to come, um, <laughs> using a particular language there. Oh. <laughs> so many jokes. Um <laughs> So because of that, uh, this is essentially the beginning of the fulfillment of um, of that covenant. And so the promises uh, of, of offspring, land, and blessing that were given to Abraham would be secured through David and his mm-hmm. line. Um, so again, in a, in a similar way, the blessings promised to, uh, to, to Moses in, in the Mosaic Covenant uh, would come uh, under fruition under the Davidic king, a faithful Davidic king, yeah. right? Not just <laughs> any king. Um but then, of course, if they stray from the Lord, then curses would come and so on. That's another thing that's distinct from the covenant of grace, which we'll get to, is the idea of uh, the conditions being met. And if you don't meet the conditions, bad things happen. <laughs> I'm watching you, Baptists. I see what you did there. That was sneaky. That was very sneaky. I can't help Sneak 100. I think we, what, we're both, what we both agree, though, terminology-wise, is to what, what uh, you're 
distinctly calling the covenant of grace. I think we would both agree would fall under the terms of new covenant. Um, yes. And obviously from a Presbyterian covenant theology, I'm going to have a different understanding of where covenant of grace, what covenant of grace of grace encompasses. Uh, but we'll save that for our covenant theology episode yes. specific to Westminster covenant theology. But Justin. again, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, irrespective of the conditional sure. elements of, of course, of these covenants, right? Um, ultimately, the covenant with David was unconditional. Um, essentially, God guaranteed a, a Davidic king on the throne, uh, and yeah. then the covenant promise would only be, f- be fulfilled through an obedient king, and then the New Testament claims that this person is Jesus, of course. Um, so, I mean, in it, ultimately, we know God is sovereign, and so His f- the covenants are going to be fulfilled the way he intends them to be. Yeah. Um, uh, and so in, in that way, it's unconditional. Um, and then, of course, all of this uh, leads up to, uh, you know, an heir of David uh, who is currently sitting on the right hand of God the Father on his throne, mm. uh, ruling uh, over the world. Um, you know, I think a lot of times I've heard, especially in the modern church, that, you know, uh, well, Satan's the king of this world. And it's like, no, sorry, he ain't. Mm. Uh, God is the king of all things. Yep. And he is currently sitting uh, on his throne in heaven, ruling over all things. Hmm. Uh, and that, of course, leads us to what, Blake? Well, that brings us into this new covenant. Uh, dun, which... dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Need some sort of like climactic music there. Oh, boy. Effects. I don't know. We'll see what happens. <laughs> um, but in the book of Hebrews, um, which I was obsessing over a while ago, and I'm still like, I, I was actually rereading some parts of Hebrews this week for a different reason. Um, but Hebrews tells us about this new covenant that so christ is not just some like representative of us in in an abstract way there's a real specific thing going on here um let me see if i can find the verse real quick i did not put it in the notes so here we go mr eric last week being like oh you guys are so prepared with the notes and i'm like well yeah, not this week am i though I, yeah i think it's interesting that in the old testament uh, i think it's only one time that new covenant is actually the term explicitly used sure um in jeremiah 31 um yeah. but i mean we see that in jeremiah and throughout found it a lot of the old testament that it's alluded to uh, sure. pretty consistently here we go okay i got this uh so I'm going to pick up here in verse 18 of Hebrews chapter 7. So this is after um, the author of Hebrews is making the point by apostolic authority that Jesus is is our high priest. And mm. even though he's not descended from the line of Aaron, from Levi and Aaron, he's a greater priesthood. And he it's just a beautiful argument. If you haven't read Hebrews in a while, go reread the book because this like the setup for how Dude, Jesus is, is, so a, good. is a superior high priest yeah. is just so beautiful. So he's basically, he's, he's this priest, right? Uh, for his witness to him, this is uh, 717. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek was that mysterious uh, king of Salem who was also a priest to Yahweh that Abraham paid tithe to. And that's part of the basis of this argument for the superiority of Jesus is that even though, you know, Levi is the priest in the old or in the, you know, the Mosaic covenant and that priesthood, Jesus is part of this order of Melchizedek priest and Abraham, who's the father of Levi, thereby superior to Levi, is gave tithe to and, and homage to Melchizedek. And so Melchizedek, who gives the blessing, right? It's like the one who is greater provides the blessing. Sorry, I'm just summarizing Hebrews here, but uh, verse 18, <laughs> it just gets so excited for on the one hand. A former commandment is set aside because of its weakness 
and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. For it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made uh, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. And it goes on to this in, in chapter eight extensively. Um, that this covenant is as much greater as the salvation he has achieved is greater, right? His mediation is this much greater. Um, and it's just, oh, yeah, go read Hebrews this week is all I got to say. <laughs> the, co- the new covenant was absolutely essential. I mean, mm-hmm. we see through all the old covenants, right, that uh, that are all different types of uh, types and shadows of the things that were to come. Um, we see that there's a consistent failure by humans uh to keep god's law right yeah. god keeps saying keep you know do this and live uh don't and you're in big trouble um we continue to fail over and over again uh and there's a cycle right of of um you know blessings and then and then uh curses and mm-hmm. and getting kicked out of lands and getting taken over uh and taken into captivity and then brought back out in into freedom and so on over and over again mm-hmm. um Ultimately, preparing the way for what must come, which would be the only, really, the, really the only possible way to to truly give uh, humanity the freedom to be free from that cycle, which mm. would be a new covenant with a perfect uh, mm. representative, yeah. uh, which could only be God Himself in in the form of uh, Christ um, as a man. So, um, and excuse my language there; it's not as though <laughs> I'm speaking modalistically here. Um, yeah, well played. But, but all Patrick. Right, right. So, uh, I mean, it's ultimately the culmination of all the other covenants uh, leading up to uh, this inevitable covenant that God predetermined from the beginning of time yeah. uh, to execute to save a particular people. Now, I do want to make a sidebar about that. Um, just going following Hebrews a little further in chapter 11, in verse 1, it says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. Mm-hmm. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And then he goes through this lineage of faith, right? Abel offered a more acceptable sacrifice. And since we're speaking in terms of you know specific covenants in the Old Testament, right? Uh, it says, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And then verse 8, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place to receive an inheritance. And he did not know where he was going, right? And it goes by faith, by faith, uh, talking about Sarah, Abraham being tested again. Um, speaking of David, right? It just comes all the way down. And all the, verse 39, though, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And then verse 12, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside these weights, the sin that entangles so closely, and let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking unto Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And 
what I love about this is it does two things for us. A, it just shows us through the whole Old Testament, this salvation has always been by faith. And ultimately, right, they're all looking forward to Jesus. And now we have this cloud of witnesses, these, these faithful saints that have died, right? And now we're looking back at the works, at the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so how much more uh, should we lay aside these sins that encumber us and run with endurance? Because how much greater now that Jesus has already come, right? Um, anyways, that was a little sidebar, but I just, I got, we, we, we went in Hebrews for a second. I just could, can't stop, won't stop. So. No, that's great, man. Look, oh. ultimately, this is, this is, I think, probably the most important aspect of this here. Yeah. Uh, in Jesus, right, we have the promised seed of Abraham, the anticipated pro- uh, prophet like Moses, mm. uh, King David's greater son, uh, and the mediator of the new covenant, God, God's covenant, the, the new covenant, promises for both Israel and the nations, uh, and all the nations uh, that have come to fruition, the ultimate expression of God's creative and redemptive goal still awaits fulfillment in right in the eschatological reality of the new creation. Um, so the beautiful thing is we're a part of history. We're not at the end yet. And yeah. we are still awaiting the the fruition of this new covenant that we're a part of. So, yeah. so just as uh, Abraham was, was part of history in the Abrahamic covenant, we're part of the new covenant as God's people, his chosen people, uh, awaiting the fruition of said covenant uh, with with what comes eschatologically speaking uh, in in new creation. Um, now, however you get there might be a little bit different than 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 us, but um, only then ultimately is the hope that's expressed uh, in all of the old covenant formula um, going to be fully experienced. Right? Uh, sure. Revelation talks about the throne of God and the of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him, and they will reign forever and ever. Um, mm. And ultimately. The new covenant comes mm. to fruition there at that point in history, and Christ mm. returns, and we reign forever mm. as co-heirs with Christ Ooh. in a new creation. And there is one other theological covenantal term that is used in both um, Presbyterian and 1689 Baptist Ooh, covenant theology. What is it, Blake? This is called the <laughs> covenant of redemption, or... Dun, 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 dun. Uh, also known as the Pactum Salutis. Um, This one we don't say that very much about because we can only go as far as the text tells us about pre-temporal events. Events, not even the right word to describe something that happens before there's time. Um, (laughs) But uh, so a basis for this would be, right? uh, We come to Ephesians chapter one, verse three, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, this is the Father choosing a people in the Son before the foundation of the world. So this is pretemporal. This is before time. This is before creation. For adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to, or sorry, uh, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Um, and then there's another reference to this. In Ephesians as well. Yeah. In him we have an obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. So do you want to give a little bit of, uh, uh, I know we didn't have that in the notes. I threw a curveball there. Um, do you want to give a little little definition there? 
real briefly? Or do you want me to? I'm sorry, I was not at all listening to what you said. That's okay. <laughs> Just talk about, you know, the I covenant of redemption, pre-temporal covenant of redemption, you know, Ooh, NBD. <laughs> NBD. Uh, yeah, go for it. Sorry. Uh, so basically, in, in Reformed theology, they would understand this. To, so they would take Ephesians 1 uh, and mm-hmm. other passages as well. It's not just Ephesians 1. You take like John 17, 1 through 5, right? And they would see that before time begins, before the world is created, the Father chooses a people to, like he, the, so election is pre-temporal. You can also get that in um, uh, Romans 8 and Romans 9, right? Election happens before the foundation of the world. That's a whole different discussion, but we'll get there when we get to soteriology. Um, but the, the point is that the Father is making his choice before the foundation of the world. Yes. And then he's choosing a people for his Son, and the Son is agreeing in, to come into human history in time and die for those people. And the Spirit is agreeing to seal and to save them. And again, that's Ephesians 1, Romans 8. There's other sections. And theologians are very careful to not talk too expansively about this particular topic because, again, you're talking about things that took place uh, according to the Scriptures before the world was. And so Mm -hmm. before creation, before time itself happens, this is the Father, Son, and Spirit agreeing to save a people. Um, And John Owen gets really, really deep into this um, idea uh, and a bunch of others. I mean, there's, there's so much here, but, um, I would definitely, that's one other aspect of covenant theology that I'm sure will come up in the next two weeks, but yeah. I just wanted to like throw it out there. So if somebody says covenant of redemption or pactum salutis, you have an idea of this intr- or I'm going to mess up the language here, inter-Trinitarian covenantal promise, basically. I think I said that right. I'm sure well, someone's going to correct if me. You have a, I think if you have a Trinitarian understanding of God, that's that. That would also just be a natural, um, logical conclusion that would have to be made, right? If sure. if God was before time and always has mm-hmm. been the Alpha right. and the Omega, right? Um, and he he's chosen before the foundations of the world to save a particular people. Uh, that is, in essence, uh, the definition of what a covenant is: uh, a promise to between two parties, um, sure. between the people that he's saving, <laughs> and right. then himself. Um, so it's nice. It's one of those things where it's nice that scripture speaks and gives us the information that it does. Mm -hmm. It gives us exactly what we need, not anything that we don't. Um, and certainly not everything that we necessarily want to know about God. Uh, but he gives us sufficient knowledge of himself revealed in his word. And that's one of those areas where he's essentially said, this is sufficient for you to know. And, um, and I'm grateful for it. Well, and it gives to me, it, you know, we're obviously jumping ahead a little bit, but all of theology is interconnected. And covenant theology yeah, in particular um, is one of the big unifying strands because covenant theology is a form of systematic theology. It's a way to understand um, yeah. how all the pieces of the Bible fit together. And so naturally, we're going to talk about our salvation in the midst of that because how great a salvation it is in this thing. You know, and John 6 kind of alludes to this as well, right? The Father. You know, all who come to me, you know, the father draws and no one can come to me unless the father has drawn him and no one can snatch them out of the father's hand. Right. And so there's this, this prompt, Vody Bauckham has a great piece about this that um, I'm forgetting how you, how you would even look it up. So uh, I'll try and remember it before next time. And, and actually our guest next week might have a, an idea. It's a little bit weird because we're recording this on a Wednesday and then we're recording the episode that will drop next week tomorrow night so schedule is going to be a little bit crazy but you know what 
that's how we roll here at Distilling Theology. Do you have any final covenantal thoughts before we uh, start to jump in? Um, you know, ultimately, I am grateful to God that he has chosen uh, to save a people mm. and that uh, he's given us the opportunity to be a part of his redemptive plan. Um, and I'm grateful for the promises of God because covenantally speaking and historically speaking, we see that God always fulfills his promises mm. and he's made a promise to his people to save them. And my, my comfort and, and my uh, peace come from understanding that God keeps his promises yeah. and that my salvation is not dependent on me, but it is dependent entirely upon the God who saved me mm. uh, and that <laughs> and that I don't have to fear uh, despite my own shortcomings. Um, mm. So praise God. I, I'm super, uh, super grateful. And um, I'm super grateful for all of the people who listen to Distilling oh. Theology. <laughs> <laughs> uh, particularly for our patrons uh, who help make this show possible. Yeah, boy. Um, if you'd like to become a patron, by all means, please do. Uh, you will get benefits such as discounts in our online store, uh, extended conversations, which will continue shortly after we hang up this particular phone Zoom meeting, uh, though there may be a brief intermission. Um, <laughs> uh, there are early releases. Uh, for example, the patrons who are um, watching or listening right now already have access to this episode as we are recording it. A week in advance. Uh, they do. Uh, there's exclusive bonus content, uh, stuff that we're working on right now, which is going to be really cool. Um, so join us for nine a month. It's less than a uh, ridiculously overpriced frappe at Starbucks. Uh, or if you join us at the fourteen ninety nine a month level, uh, after your first three months, you will get a special, sanctified, <laughs> patrons only coffee mug, uh, plus additional bonus content, that's uh, particularly it. video content. That's going to be really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so Blake, how can people get in touch with us? Uh, if they would like to do so. Sure. So you can check us out at distillingtheology.com. Once again, we're back in business. Praise the Lord. Uh, <laughs> probably no one even noticed, but we're there. You can check us out at patreon.com slash distillingtheology if you want to subscribe and join for some of this really awesome content. Check us out on facebook.com slash distillingtheology to see our Facebook page. We still have a question up there uh, pinned to the top of the page. What... Um, theological topic do you think we're going to pair with what holiday or event uh coming up before the end of the year so get there and vote uh, the first person to guess correctly will send you a uh, special mug so thank you guys for participating in that please jump in and comment you can join us on our facebook group Distil- just search distilling theology answer the membership questions we'd love to have you in there it's about 500 members right now and just a load of fun um really engaging theological conversations i've seen people posting like pictures like i'm in the liquor store help this is what i want what, what should i get uh, so it's a lot of fun also follow us on instagram uh again Distilling Theology. We're almost to a thousand followers, so keep that train going. We post six days a week. We try to keep, uh, you know, the the images high quality. We've got books on there, whiskeys, spirits, merch, all kinds of fun stuff. So check that out. Use the hashtag Distilling Theology on your photographs of distilled spirits and uh, Distilling Theology merch and Bibles and books, and we may give you a shout out. So, Justin, what's coming up next week? Yeah, I'm super excited. (laughs) Next week, we are going to be discussing. The first of the two primary uh, covenantal theological views in the Reformed world. Uh, In my case, the firstborn 
uh, is 1689 Covenant Federal uh, That's not theology. how this works. Uh, <laughs> uh, 1689 Covenant Theology. Uh, for those of you unversed, that is Baptist Covenant Theology, um, historically speaking. Uh, we are going to have a very special guest. Yes, we will. Uh, none other than Eric Jett. S- Eric coming. Jett will be on the show. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, we will also be having on uh, <laughs> uh, Sam Renahan. Yeah. Uh, so if you don't know who he is, uh, he has um, his Master's of Divinity from Westminster Seminary in California, an Institute of Reformed Baptist Studies. He's got his PhD, uh, Free University of Amsterdam. He is a pastor of Trinity Reformed Baptist Church in California. He has authored several articles and books, including... Oh, here's my phone. Uh, several articles and books, including God Without Passions, From Shadow to Substance, The Federal Theology, of The English Particular Baptists. Um, there's one that appears to be in French, De Dois. Well, we'll talk about all his stuff next week. Of, yeah, he's got a bunch of stuff. And what are um, we tasting? Yeah, and he's awesome. Also, <laughs> yeah. we'll be possibly sipping, uh, or will be sipping... Um, Johnny Walker, double black label. Ooh, smoky. Which I'm excited for. Indeed. Uh, yeah, it's awesome. I'm Thank super excited. Thank you guys excited. for listening. It's been if fun. If you guys join us on Patreon, uh, <laughs> you will be able to possibly ask some questions to Sam. Uh, well, except we're recording this tomorrow night, so they'll yes. miss it. But you can go and watch That's those. True. But you can join us for the following guests that we're going to have and ask questions of them. So we'll, we'll tease that again next week. But yeah. thank you guys so much for listening. Ooh. And as always... Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Soli Deo Gloria.